Hello and welcome to The Ore of Greatness, Episode 1.3, World War II and Juan Domingo Perón. Welcome back. Last time we covered Che's early years in Alta Gracia and discussed the Spanish Civil War. This time we'll get into Che's adolescent years before discussing the rise of Juan Perón and Peronism. After establishing their independence on July 9, 1816, Argentina was always very involved in the affairs of South America, often jockeying with Brazil for the role of prominent power in South America. Outside of South America, Argentina's official foreign policy was one of military neutrality. While they were militarily neutral, they did not choose the isolationist path. Argentine politicians and generals were always quick to establish and defend their trade rights. Economic growth and expanding trade was always number two on the Argentine foreign policy list of importance. The first, of course, was maintaining independence. They wanted to encourage beneficial involvement, but greatly resisted any sort of intervention. Even if you have never studied or paid much attention to Latin American history, you are still well aware of the long history of European and American interference in the region. In fact, as we get into the later stages of the life of Jacob R., we will be exploring American intervention in greater detail. By the time of World War I in 1914, Argentina had grown to having one of the ten largest economies in the world. The land in Argentina was very productive in agriculture and allowed the Argentines to export goods at a very high rate. Argentina's greatest economic partners outside of South America included the United States, the British Empire, and the German Empire. Throughout World War I, Argentina stayed neutral and chose to continue trading with both sides, though primarily to Britain and its allies. Once the United States joined the war, they put pressure on all of the Americas to join the war and present a united front against the Central Powers. But Argentina stood steadfast against pressure and remained neutral. The United States held a slight grudge against Argentina after the war because of this, but Britain understood, and with the roca rusumen Trade Treaty of 1933, sought to protect trade between Argentina, Great Britain, and the entire British Commonwealth. By the time World War II began, the Argentine economy had begun a decline. Their main economic partner remained Great Britain, but still they did not want to become involved in the war. This was partially due to the fact that they could continue to enrich themselves based on trading with both sides, and they were able to expand their exports to the United States after the United States entered the war and began to see shortages in their domestic production. Many of the people in Argentina supported the Allies, but there was a growing pro-fascist wing of the population. Many of the prominent politicians and the vast majority of the military officers had German sympathies, and some even direct ties to the German or fascist Italian armies. Toward the beginning of the war, preliminary talks of entering the war were had between Britain and Argentina, but Britain told those in support of entering the war that they would rather have Argentina remain neutral, so that Argentina could continue producing food for the entirety of the British Empire. The choice to remain neutral became the smart choice for the Argentine government because if they declared for the Allies, the military officers would stage a coup, and if they declared for the Axis powers, then they might face a popular uprising and risk losing Britain as their greatest trade ally. Though after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Americans once again put pressure on the whole of South America to join in the war effort in order to present a united front, and were quite unhappy when Argentina did not jump to its defense. Of course, the growing discontent in Argentina still forced a coup before the end of the war, but at least the government tried their best to stay in power. The government choosing to remain neutral did not, however, keep the people of Argentina from declaring their allegiance to one side or the other. In fact, we will be rejoining the Guevara family at this point to see firsthand the experience of a family that supported the Allied cause. 
At the outset of the war, Guevara Lynch dedicated his time to Action Argentina, which was a pro-ally solidarity group. He established a local branch in Alta Gracia by renting a small office to serve as their headquarters. Young Che, 11 years old at this point, wanted to be involved as well, and he joined the youth wing of Action Argentina to do it. The group provided him with his own membership card, and according to his father, he often exhibited it with great pride. Che was said to have dedicated any of his free time outside of school and play to working with the group. Action Argentina was created by proposal of the Socialist Party of Argentina and backed heavily by former ambassador to France, former president, and current chairman of the Radical Civil Union political party, Marcelo Torcudo de Alvier. It was a solidarity group, but is primarily anti-fascist and anti-Nazi. Guevara Lynch helped the cause by volunteering to travel through the Cordoba province to speak in public meetings and follow up tips about possible Nazi infiltration. He always sent all of his findings back to headquarters. His chief concern was the large German settlement in the Calamuchitas Valley near Alta Gracia. Guevara Lynch organized members of the group to spy on the German inhabitants. He claims he found German naval internees performing military training exercises, detected truckloads of arms, and uncovered a Nazi spy ring operating out of a German-owned hotel. He, of course, reported all of his findings to the government and the national headquarters of Action Argentina, but they never responded and his tips never led anywhere. So it is very likely he had just been caught in the moment and was greatly exaggerating his contributions. A little bit of a delusion of grandeur of sorts seemed to accompany many of the Oak Guevara Lynch's stories. However, that is a common problem with the sources we have available on Che's early life. Most perspectives were gained after Che became famous and after his death. People wanted to have their names associated with their famous native son. They also wanted to link his early actions and thoughts to his later ones. His environment certainly helped develop and shape his later life viewpoints, and that is of course why we are spending so much time investigating his youth, but he was not born a communist, nor a revolutionary, and every once in a while, it is rather clear that stories of Che's youth were embellished to make it look as though he was. Unfortunately, that is a common problem with studying history, and we will forever be trying to piece together a story with sometimes misleading information. In March 1942, the nearly 14-year-old Ernesto Guevara entered high school. Unfortunately for Che, there were no high schools in Alta Gracia, and he had to commute by bus every day to Colegio Nacional Dean Funes in the city of Cordoba which was roughly 23 miles away. The following summer break, early 1943, the family decided to move to Cordoba. Between Che already commuting and his sister Celia beginning high school in Cordoba, it made sense to move, but the largest reason was that Guevara Lynch finally found a partner in the city to launch a building firm, and it was far past time to start getting some fresh income. The income and birth of Che's youngest sibling in May 1943 left the Guevaras feeling optimistic. The new city and new child meant a fresh start for Ernesto and Celia, but sadly that was not to last. The birth of Juan Martin was the couple's last chance at reconciliation, and in the end it did nothing to improve their relationship, and within just a few years their marriage would be officially over, though the romance aspect of the relationship would be over far earlier. Unfortunately for the people of Argentina, the shakeup of one single family unit was a small thing compared to the shakeup of the political world. A military coup saw new leaders emerge, and ones with far more of an inclination towards fascism. Luckily for the country at large, they did not act on their German sympathies, and instead remained neutral until the writing was clearly on the wall, and they finally bent to the will of the United States and declared war on Germany. It was just a symbolic gesture, however, and the Argentine military did nothing to assist in the war cause. The coup in subsequent years led to the unexpected rise of Juan Perón. 
We will be discussing the coup and the rise of Juan Perón in greater detail to end the episode. For now, we are going to focus on the adolescence of Che Guevara and bring him to the eve of his senior year of high school. Che began expanding his interests and friend network after he started school in Cordoba. As most teenagers do, he also started asserting his opinions, questioning the world around him, and forming his own unique worldview that was different from that of his parents. He waited until his later life to openly rebel, but that could have had more to do with the very open home that the Guevara's used to raise their children. Books ranging from Karl Marx and Frederick Engels to John Locke or even Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf were readily available in the Guevara library. Ideas were nurtured, though the slant was generally to the left in the Guevara household. No one was ever turned away by the Guevara's. The Guevara home kept an egalitarian principle, and many were known to call Celia Madre, in the sense that she was the whole neighborhood's mama. Roberto Ahumada, one of Che's younger brother's friends, recalls many times where he would come over for dinner unannounced, and the family simply split the meal into one extra equal share for him to share. The family was not worried about eating a little less to accommodate a visitor. That was just the way it was in the Guevara household. People would come and go as they pleased. If they were hungry, then they always found a bowl of food at Celia's table. As such, the home encouraged creativity and was a way to meet many interesting people, whether they be itinerant painters, Ecuadorian poets, or university professors. All came and all were welcome. It created a very unique youth experience. With all the strange visitors, the estrangement of Ernesto and Celia, and the rumors of Ernesto's infidelity, I began wondering if the Guevara's had entered into an open marriage arrangement in order to attempt to stay together for the kids, but still have their sexual urges met. However, I think this might be slightly a 21st century skewing of the situation. The free love movement had not quite reached the world as it would in the 1960s, and though Celia is often cited as a leftist, a feminist, and one willing to do things first, she has never been accused of sexual promiscuity. In fact, unlike Guevara Lynch, Celia would never remarry after the couple's eventual divorce. None of my source material indicates any sort of open marriage agreement existed, and I have to assume that if there was one, then the story would have broken by now. In a new house, a new school, and a full house, the budding adolescence of Che Guevara forced him to either start asserting himself or be faced with being pushed to the background of his own life. And so he started questioning his parents, challenging his teachers, and making new friends. When he first entered Dean Funes for high school, his buzz-cut hairstyle earned him one of many in a long string of nicknames that would never stick. He was called El Palau, meaning Baldi. Even though El Palau was smaller than most of his friends with thin arms and an asthmatic condition, he was steadfast with his desire to try his hand at athletics. His main goal was to join the rugby team and prove to the world that he was tough enough to be out there with the bigger boys. When the coach initially looked at Jay, he did not think he had much of a chance. However, what Che lacked in size, he made up for with fearlessness. His old coach remembers how Che used to scream out, Here comes El Fernabundo Serna! Fernabundo being the Spanish word for furious. Fernabundo being the Spanish word for furious, and Serna, his mother's maiden name. The war cry earned Che the nickname Fuser, which I have to imagine he preferred greatly over El Palau. While Che loved his rugby and did all he could to not use his asthma as a crutch, he regularly had to run off the field in a coughing pit to retrieve his inhaler. As a side effect, he was condemned to never make it to the first team of his school's team and had to content himself with playing for the second team. Despite his athletic pursuits, the young Fuser continued to be an insatiable reader, 
He was often spotted sitting on the ground around the pitch before practice started with a book in his lap and his eyes glued to the page. His choices were often advanced and varied. He regularly read the works of Freud, Baudelaire's poetry, Argentine classics such as Sarmiento's Facundo, the latest American literature by the likes of William Faulkner and John Steinbeck, Alexander Dumas, Jules Verne in their original French, and what might have been his favorite, the ingenious gentleman Don Quixote of La Macha. On June 4, 1943, a secret cabal of military officers carried out a coup and overthrew President Castillo. War Minister General Pedro Ramirez seized power and set about repressive measures to secure his position. The city of Cordoba had a long and cherished history as a center of learning for Argentina. Staff, faculty, and students were quick to stand up for that tradition when Ramirez started to censor not only the press, but also protesting faculty members. More arrests followed as further protests broke out. One of those arrested was Che's friend and rugby coach, Alberto Granado. Alberto Granado is a name worth making a mental note of as he is one of the main primary sources we have of Che's adolescence, and even more important, Alberto was the traveling companion during Che's famed motorcycle journey through South America. We will discuss Alberto and Che's friendship a bit more at a later date. Che went to visit Alberto in jail, and they spoke at length about news from the outside world. Alberto was six years Che's senior and a University of Cordoba student. He had been jailed for protesting the firings of faculty members, but he was still allowed visitors, and as such he was still very much clued in to the goings-on of the protests against the de facto president, Pedro Ramirez. Alberto had received word that a march of protest was being organized that would feature secondary school students marching in solidarity with the imprisoned university students and faculty. Alberto asked the 15-year-old Che Guevara if he would join, but the future revolutionary refused to join. Upon refusal, Alberto did not give up and beseeched his young friend to join to show support for the injustice done upon him. Che passionately replied, What do you mean, Alberto? Go into the street and let the police club us with their nightsticks? That? No. I only go if I have a revolver. It may seem strange to you that the young revolutionary bypassed the chance to protest against a perceived injustice. The adolescent Che grew up in a time of great political uproar, but he suddenly actually acted out a political mission. Che would one day die fighting the revolutionary fight, but as a teenager, he loved to debate, observe, and speculate. But he suddenly actively participated. Fifteen years later, an adult Che Guevara would speak on the issue. He explained, Fifteen years is an age when already a man knows what he is going to give his life for, and he has no fear of doing so, when within his breast he naturally possesses an ideal which encourages him to immolate himself. That quote could be a self-reflective way of explaining away the moment, but it also seems to be a rather telling explanation. Jay was not the type to be ordered to do something. He gave his all when he believed in the act, but otherwise he responded with apathy. Daniel James and John Lee Anderson point out the paradox of the 15-year-old Che Guevara's refusal to stand and fight the newly oppressive regime. I think both the original quote, the original action, and the explanatory quote are perfectly in line with the character of Che Guevara. Che is famous for his quote, I don't care if I fall, as long as someone else picks up my gun and keeps shooting. Che was not interested in giving his life without agency. He wanted the chance to defend himself. He was not going to walk into harm's way and ask to be beaten, especially for a cause that by all indications he did not feel particularly moved by. The boyhood Che was one who was constantly described as fearless when he performed his daredevil stunts. He was constantly exposed to leftist viewpoints and often watched those around him speak out against the wrongs imposed upon them. 
When his father asked him to help keep tabs on fascists during the Spanish Civil War, Che was quick to help and proud to display his membership card. When Alberto asked him to protest on his behalf, Che flatly refused. This was not a paradox, this was a character trait. The young Che Guevara hated nothing so much as feeling helpless or useless. Because his asthma often forced him to feel that way whenever he began coughing and wheezing, so he refused to enter a losing situation without being armed and at least having the chance to defend himself. In many ways, it also seems as though the 15-year-old Che Guevara was still trying to understand the world he lived in, still forming his worldview, still deciding which cause he would dedicate his life to. I think that is the reason he read advanced psychology books and sought out books by famed authors all over the world. He had been born into a tumultuous time period. From the time he was born until he was 18 years old, the political system of his home country was in constant fluctuation. He was grasping at straws, and what he saw even outside his country's borders was first an economic system that had just collapsed, followed by the breakout of the largest war in human history. It seems pretty clear that Che wanted to understand the world around him before he started fighting it. He wanted to educate himself so that his wits could be the revolver that he would use to make things make sense. Whether you personally think Che eventually came to the right decision on the important issues or not is irrelevant at this point. For now, he was just like any other 15-year-old boy in a tough spot, confused and left searching for answers. Whether you agree with his eventual chosen vocation or not, I think it is at least very easy to admire the fact that he wanted to be fully informed and have the tools to put up a fight before he would dare jump into the ring. The march and protest went along as scheduled without Che, and it did not result in the release of Alberto Granado. Instead, it took an entire year before the university student was released. When Alberto was finally released, he did not hold the fact that Che refused to demonstrate for his release against Che. In fact, their friendship grew. They had found that they shared many literary interests, sports interests, and despite the disagreement in how to protest, according to an interview Alberto gave after Che's death, when there was talk about politics, we always shared a similar view. The two also held a passion for traveling and seeing the world outside the lens of the privileged. That final piece would end up being the piece that would set them off on an adventure that would cement each of their personal vocations for the remainder of their lives. Searching, nonconformist, with yearning for adventure, might just be the best way to describe the adolescent Che Guevara. Che was said to have continued his father's Nazi hunting escapades with some of his school friends. One such friend insists the two had snuck into La Cumbra to spy on the German inhabitants, and when they were discovered, were chased away by Nazis. He even claims that they had two shots fired at them as they retreated. Che also received some renown in school amongst the anti-fascist crowd for standing up to a pro-Nazi history teacher about an inaccuracy in his lecture. However, the detailed examples of political activity are far and few between for Che Guevara, and it seems more accurate to say that he was for the most part a fairly normal teenager who occasionally felt the need to rebel against an authority figure. Guevara Lynch did steadfastly remain an opponent of the fascists throughout the wars. He stayed active in Action Argentina and joined Cordoba's Committee Pro de Gaulle, which was a solidarity network that supported the French resistance to Nazi-occupied France. For his service, Guevara Lynch received a certificate signed by the head of Free France and future president of France, Charles de Gaulle himself. This certificate became one of Guevara Lynch's most prized possessions for the remainder of his life. As is common for most teenagers, books, politics, sports, and school often paled in comparison to their fascination with the opposite sex. In Argentina, the middle class and higher crust of society still held to the idea of a traditional Catholic society in terms of marriage and sexuality. Dates were common, but girls were still expected to retain their virginity until marriage 
or they would lose the image of the good girl. The lower rungs of society had started to have a bit looser morals in terms of sexual adventure. As such, boys like young Che would often find themselves dating the good girls, but calling on brothels and maids in order to satisfy their sexual urges. Che seemed to have inherited his sexual appetite from his father. He and his friends passed around the erotic original edition of A Thousand and One Nights, but they also sought out actual women to satisfy their sexual desires. Che's first introduction to sex came with his friend Kalika Ferrer's family servant girl. His friends apparently watched from another room, and when Che interrupted the session in order to puff on his inhaler, all of his friends got a good laugh. Che, however, despite being laughed at by his friends for needing his inhaler, did not stop visiting the servant girl, nor did he stop finding new partners. He would continue the pattern of sexual promiscuity throughout much of his life. By the time Che was 17, he had already developed his signature good looks. Most of the girls from his class would have classified him as handsome. His devil-may-care attitude, combined with his quick wit and sarcastic tone, made him popular with the girls. Given that he also had developed a reputation for daredevil stunts, and it was clear that he had positioned himself as the quintessential bad boy of the 1940s era, he would have been sure to make the girls swoon, the teachers roll their eyes, and his parents ever fretful for his safety. Given that he also had a good name with a strong family background, and the young El Palau was turning into quite the catch. He would continue to use his rugged good looks and irresistible charms to his advantage for the rest of his life. Charms and good looks were not the only attributes and habits he developed in his early years, however. Jay began to enjoy the looks and responses people gave him when he said or expressed an opinion that was particularly shocking. Jay routinely voiced tongue-in-cheek opinions or decided to take on the role of devil's advocate when no one asked him to do so. Throughout his school rotation, he always made it a point to shock each teacher he was assigned to at least once. His classmates grew to expect the behavior, and in turn dubbed him El Loco, or Crazy Guevara. That was a trait that would stick with him his entire life, and he would routinely find himself chuckling at the looks of his fellow revolutionary soldiers in camp after he made a particularly biting remark. Though for all the electricity that his words held, the most shocking thing about the young Guevara may very well have been his stench. For some unknown reason, Che took great pride in the fact that he would go days without bathing, or that he would continue to wear the same old, dirty rugby shirt, even though it had been weeks since the last time he had washed it. On any day that he smelled particularly unpleasant, his friends took to calling him Chancho, which meant pig, after the barnyard animal, as they could find no better comparison for him than an animal that rolled in its own excrement. With that final piece of adolescent immaturity, we will leave Che Guevara for the remainder of this episode in order to discuss the rise of Juan Domingo Perón. Next time we will revisit Che as he begins to take his schooling a touch more seriously, get his first job, and head off to college. If you are not interested in learning about Juan Perón, then you may skip the rest of the episode, but I would encourage you to stick around, as it is an incredibly interesting story, and Perón would be worth doing a podcast series about just him. But I will be brief, so you don't have to worry about me going on too many tangents. Juan Perón was born in Lobos, Argentina, which is located in the Buenos Aires province, on October 8, 1895. He is most famous for serving as president of Argentina, a record three times, and as the leader and founder of the Peronist movement. Though Perón was born near Buenos Aires, he spent most of his youth in the harsh region of Patagonia. One thing that Perón had in common with Che was that both of their fathers thought they should try their hands at ranching, and both failed. At the age of 16, Perón entered the National Military College of Argentina and entered the military upon his graduation for a career as a military man. Perón was strongly built and stood six feet tall, 
which helped him excel at all sports that he participated in, but especially boxing and other fighting sports. Perone supported the wrong man during the 1930 military coup that saw General Uriburu rise to power, but his only punishment was being assigned to a rural post. He made the most of the situation, and within a year he had achieved the rank of major and began teaching military history. He gained some notoriety as he published a few treatises on the subject. He sought further education at the University of Turin in Italy, and while he was there he was assigned to study militaries of Europe. Of particular note to Perone were Nazi Germany and Mussolini's fascist Italy. Perone traces his interest in social democracy as originating during his time in Europe. Perone returned to Argentina in 1941 on the heels of the beginning of World War II. As we discussed previously, World War II was a great dividing point in Argentina. Some wanted to join the Allies, others wanted to support the Nazis, and still others wanted to remain neutral. The unrest grew and the situation arose where a coup began to look inevitable. Perone's considerable political skills had allowed him to gain the trust of his fellow military officers and together they planned the overthrow of the current sitting president. The coup d'etat was launched and carried out on June 4, 1943. The coup ended with General Ramirez in power. For his loyalty to the United Officers Group and his role that led to the successful coup, Perone was asked how he would like to be rewarded. Perone asked only that he be appointed to the relatively minor post of Secretary of Labor and Social Welfare. His plan was to use his ideas of social democracy to gain popular support amongst the laborers and the general lower classes of society, which together made up the majority of the Argentine population. Perón performed in the job admirably and quickly gained a reputation amongst the common people of Argentina. He also caught the eye of Edelmiro Farrell. Farrell took a special interest in Perón, and when Farrell became president through a fraudulent election in 1944, Farrell made Perón first the Minister of War, and then followed that up by making Perón his Vice President, which showed to the country and the military that Perón was to be his successor. Unfortunately, the hand-picked successor did not please some of the military and naval officers, who have felt that Perón was too powerful already and far too popular with the un underprivileged masses to allow anywhere near the presidency. So on October 9, 1945, a group of officers forced Perón to resign his posts. Four days later, the officers jailed Perón in order to alienate him from his massive following. Unfortunately for the officers, the followers of Perón came to him. Labor unions, women's groups, and just plain general support for the ever-popular Perón began protesting his arrest and demonstrating against the officers who had locked up their national hero. On October 17, 1945, Juan Perón was released from jail, and in a speech to his loyal followers, he promised he would go on to win the presidential election that year. Eva Duarte was Perón's paramour at the time. She was absolutely instrumental in organizing resistance and demonstrations while Perón was in prison. She had coordinated with all the labor unions that Perón had had an effect on and had organized all of the various women's groups to show up for the demonstration in large numbers. Without her support, the demonstrations may never have happened and Perón may never have been a t totally free man again. Eva and Juan chose to marry five days after his release on October 22, 1945. As you probably know, or can guess at this point, Juan Perón was able to take the momentum from his release from prison and ride that to a successful campaign for president. He would take 56% of the vote and become the 29th president of Argentina on June 4, 1946. He would serve in the post until he was overthrown on September 21, 1955. After taking office, President Perón declared that henceforth October 17, the day he was released from prison, would be commemorated in Argentina as Loyalty Day. Every year since then, 
October 17th, has been a day dedicated to loyalty in Argentina. It is not a public holiday, so Argentines still have to work, but they continue to commemorate the day. This year, October 17th, falls on a Monday. I guess we will all commemorate the day this year when we show our loyalty to our bosses by showing up to work on a Monday morning. The two key goals of Perón when he took office were social justice and economic independence. He planned to accomplish both goals through what he termed the third position. The other two positions being the capitalism of the United States of America and the communism of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. In practice, the third position was an authoritarian and populist system of governance. Perón wanted to continue the neutral tradition of Argentina, and he sent diplomats to reopen relations with the Soviet Union. He also chose to continue trading with both the United States and the British Commonwealth. His goal, though, was to lead his country to more industrial development so that they could rely less heavily on their agricultural trades. He planned to raise worker wages and guarantee them better living conditions. In practice, though, he was not always successful. While on the face of it, the sound of higher wages and better conditions for laborers sounds wonderful, the actual actions of Perón sometimes showed a different story. Perón had control over the military and would use them to enforce his rule of law. In certain places, he restricted or outright eliminated constitutional liberties. He produced propaganda at a very high rate to make the citizens believe he was more effective at his stated goals than he was in reality. He would nationalize industries to bring more money into the government, and he regularly censored the press. Juan Perón's government even seized the popular Buenos Aires newspaper, La Prensa, before it was sold to a friendly labor union that would only publish positive stories about the government. In 1949, Perón forced a convention to approve a new constitution so that he could be re-elected and continue to serve in his post. Due to the misinformation and slightly more money in the pockets of the underprivileged laborers, Perón did win again. It did help that Perón's wife, Eva, was a hugely popular public figure who helped him run and manage the public image of the government. Eva Perón was, and by most accounts still is, very popular amongst the common people of Argentina. Unfortunately for everyone, Eva Perón grew ill due to complications from cancer in 1951 and would eventually pass away shortly after her husband's re-election on July 26, 1952. Eva was a truly inspiring force in her charity work, work towards women's suffrage, political work, and everything beyond. She sadly died at the young age of 33, and we are left with what-if questions on if she had survived longer. If you have ever heard the musical Evita, it is about the life of Eva Perón, and today Eva is often cited as an influence and inspiration amongst South American politicians. If you ever have the time, Eva is certainly worth a deeper look. Juan Perón had still been very popular at the beginning of his second term in office. Workers liked him because he had increased their pay and mandated that almost all jobs gave their workers Sundays off. He had built several schools and hospitals through the public works projects. The conservatives, though, were starting to consider him an enemy, as he had nationalized banks and railways and centralized the grain industry. After the death of Eva, the economy started to stagnate. Perón's approval ratings amongst the working class for the first time started to dip. Eva was seen as the spiritual leader of the nation, even given that title by Congress prior to her death. Without the much-loved image of Eva at his side, and an economy that had lost its momentum, for the first time since he took office, Perón looked vulnerable. Perón's conservative opposition was determined not to wait until he turned things around and regained the admiration of the common people. Instead, they grew bolder and began to question his leadership before they outright resorted to violence. Perón was eventually forced out of office on September 21, 1955, and forced into exile. Juan Perón's exile would last for 18 years and take the end of his story outside the time frame that we are covering in this podcast. But just so I'm not leaving you hanging, 
Juan Perón did return to not just Argentina, but also the presidency. The rise of Juan Perón and the populist policies he put in place had led to the establishment of the Peronist political party in Argentina. The party had been ruled illegal after Perón's exile, but they would not go away. Eventually, through sheer determination and persistence, the party was able to win back their right to have a party and win back the presidency. The Peronist party invited Perón back to Argentina in 1973 and would go on to elect him president in a special election. Juan Perón would return as the 40th president of Argentina and serve in the role from October 12, 1973 until his death on July 1, 1974. Perón was not all that effective in his third term that he would serve in for less than a year. During his exile, it is reported that he met with the adult Che Guevara on two separate occasions. On both occasions, Che was a member of the Cuban government. Che was attempting to use his influence to end Perón's exile and allow the ex-president the chance to return home. It has been reported that Che told Perón of his plans to go to Bolivia, but Perón cautioned him not to go and told him, you will not survive in Bolivia. Obviously, Che did not listen. Though Che was unsuccessful in ending Perón's exile, and he was dead by the time Perón returned, it does seem that Perón still appreciated the attempt. While in office in his third term, Perón re-established relations with Castro's Cuba, which was a big help to the island nation that was still dealing with the effects of the United States embargo. In the early morning hours of July 1, 1974, Juan Perón suffered a heart attack at the age of 78 and passed away. Perón has left behind a complicated legacy, but the Peronist party is still a fixture in the national political landscape of Argentina, and Perón is the greatest political influence of Argentina since 1945. He remains the only person in Argentine history to be elected president three times. Juan Perón will be the last major Argentine political figure that we will discuss in great length on this podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed the overview. We will mention him a few more times as we travel through Che's remaining years in Argentina, though never at the length we just did. That is all for this edition of the Aura of Greatness podcast. I hope you are enjoying the series on Ernesto Che Guevara so far. I would like to encourage you to subscribe using your preferred podcast app, whether it be iTunes, Acast, Google Play, Stitcher, or what have you. If there is anywhere that my podcast does not appear, then please let me know, and I will rectify that situation. I want it to be as easy as possible for you to receive all of the new episodes. If you would like to visit the show's official webpage, you can go to acast.com slash auraofgreatness or to the website at auraofgreatnesspodcast.blogspot.com. I would love to hear from you to know what you think of the show so far, and I can always be reached by email at auraofgreatnesspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Aura of Greatness podcast, episode 1.3, World War II, and Juan Perón. We'll see you next time.